Well, what's up, church? I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, last week, I was last Friday, I was at Kalahari Retreat with a lot of your students. Actually, I drove bus just to do it, just to just to be involved with some, you know, something somehow. And so I, I drove bus for Tiffin and Fremont, taking students there uh, all Friday afternoon and evening. And um, and had a good time. I actually got to meet one of, or I actually got to see one of my friends that I grew up with, who actually works at a sister church of ours, who were, who was also involved uh, with the retreat. And he, we were just kind of making small talk, seeing how things were going. And and he asked me about uh, COVID. And he's like, Hey, you know, have you had have you had the COVID yet? And I'm like, uh, Probably. You know, I don't know. I haven't like gotten sick necessarily, and so I'm assuming you know I've gotten it because everybody's getting. It. And, you know, I'm assuming I, I, my body defeated it without me even knowing it, you know. And so we're talking about that. And then um, um, he's asking me, he's kind of pushing for, uh, further. And I'm like, actually, kind of interesting. I, uh, I haven't gotten sick in the last three years. This has been like the healthiest last three years of my life. Like every year, growing up and, you know, even as an adult, like, uh, you know, there's always uh, something will like take me down for a couple of days, except for the last three years. Like I haven't gotten sick since 2018. And so I'm telling them that and I'm like, it's kind of interesting because the world's in a pandemic and I'm like the best I've ever been health-wise. And, uh, and then I'm getting even more into it. I'm like, you know, COVID's coming up with all these variants. And, and they're like throwing this at me, throwing at this, all just to take me down. And it can't do it. Like there's, you know, it's, like, it's not going to happen. And my wife has been sick and my kids have been sick. And there's been sickness in my house. And even when it's in my house, it can't take me. Woo, yeah. Have you, uh, have you ever heard the phrase, pride comes before the fall? <laughs> do you know that was from the Bible? All right, it's from Proverbs. And it's, uh, it's real. Um, last uh, Sunday after church... I went home and I was like, kind of not feeling normal, but that happens sometimes, you know, after I, after I preach, like my throat's kind of, you know, dry or whatever. And uh, I just went home and I slept. And Monday and Tuesday last week, man, I was, I was sick. Like something got me. I don't know if it's COVID. I don't know what it was, but something took me down. And, um, and so that pride, you know, it just got erased this week. I think it was because of that. Maybe God's like, take you down real easy. And, uh. And got me. Actually, he called me later this week, and I'm like, what? I'm sick. It was like on Tuesday. And he's like, you're sick? He thought I was joking. I'm like, yeah. He's like, after all that that you said, you're sick this week? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I am. <laughs> well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at um, pride. Okay, we're going to talk about pride. And the story that we're talking about um, with Esther, uh, we're going to see a prime example of pride and what pride can do, and really the ugly side of pride in us and in our life. Uh, the last couple weeks, we've been uh, we've been walking through this true story about a young girl named Esther, and uh, we started a couple weeks ago talking about this angry Persian king who knew how to party. Okay, so it's this guy. His name's King Xerxes. He lived 2,500 years ago. Actually, the the his name in the in the version that we're re- reading is King Ahasuerus, but that sounds like you're sneezing, you know, as you wears. We're going to call him King Xerxes. That's his other name. Same guy in history, okay? Uh, just a different name. And so uh, we talked about this king. He's a real guy. He lived 2,500 years ago. In fact, if you've heard of the movie or, or heard of the story of the 300, all right, the Persian king attacking um, like 300 Spartans or whatever, I don't, and I don't recommend the movie. I don't like the movie. The movie's super weird. And so I'm not a fan of it. But anyway, um, the king of Persia, this is him. 
right? This is King Xerxes. He's a real guy, a real story. Actually, that story of the 300, that battle happens in the middle of this book or in the middle of the story. It happens, be- it happens after he banishes his first queen and after Esther becomes the second queen. And so um, it's kind of interesting. So real guy, he lived 2,500 years ago. And we talked about how one day in a fit of rage, this guy banishes his own wife. He banishes the queen. She doesn't do what he asks. And so he's like, fine, you're done. You're gone. And then after he sobers up a little while and after he, he starts to actually miss her, and remember, there's nothing that he could do about it. Once he, a king like, makes a decree in this culture, like it's done. Not even the king can take it back. And so she's gone. He'll never see her again because of their own laws. And so they begin to search for a woman who will become the new queen. Now, it just so happened, in the city, the capital city of Susa, there's this beautiful Jewish girl. Her name is Esther. And last week, we learned about Esther. We were introduced about, to, to Esther. And Esther did not have an easy life. Right? Her mother has died. At this point, her dad has died. She's being raised by her, by her cousin named Mordecai. He's probably the only guy that she knows. She's an orphan. Uh, Mordecai happens to be one of the king's official, officials, and so she's, she's living with him. He's raising her. Uh, they, live, they don't get to live in Israel. These are Jewish people. Uh, they're actually with the enemy. They're living in a foreign land in Persia, and it's just not a great situation for Esther. And then we find out that because of her beauty, she is picked as a potential queen for queen or for king Xerxes. So she gets taken and she goes and and after a year of training and competing with all the other girls and all the dramas like the bachelor in real life um, and by the providence of God she ends up being picked by king Xerxes as his new queen. And it's crazy what we looked at last week is you know just think about it look how God takes this poor Jewish orphan girl who's got nothing to queen of the most powerful empire on earth. I mean, think about it. She gets to marry the king. She never has to worry about money again. She never has to worry about wanting this or wanting that. It can all be given to her. She, always, she will always have what she needs. She's got the riches. She's got the fame. She's got the authority. She's got the power. She's got everything the world constantly puts in our face and constantly tells us that we should want and that we should need. And we assume from this point on that everybody would live happily ever after. They'd be good to go. Everything's set, but that's not how real stories go. In fact, the author at the end of chapter two last week where we looked at, I, I, I kind of skipped this, but there's a tiny little story that the author kind of wraps up and says, hey, here's this. Um, you, you don't need it. You need to know it right now, but just know someday. So I'm going to tell you that real quick, and then we'll jump into what we're looking at today. So the author just tells us, hey, actually one day, um, Mordecai, he's doing his thing. He's at the king's gate. That's where he worked, whatever he did. And he overhears two other of the king's officials talking about how they would like to assassinate the king, all right? This was nothing new in that culture. In fact, Xerxes, um, many years later, he's actually going to be assassinated by one of his own officials. So this is kind of a normal thing. Um, and so he's there, and Mordecai overhears this, and so he goes to Esther, reports it to her, and Esther goes to the King Xerxes and reports it to him. There's this big investigation that happens, and it finds out that the, that the rumors are true, that these guys are actually trying to assassinate King Xerxes. So King Xerxes has them arrested and executed. Done. That's it. That's all the author tells us. Um, He doesn't give us any more details. There's no public recognition for Mordecai. There's no, hey, thank you, Esther. There's no explanation. It's just, hey, oh, by the way, this happened one day. Do with it whatever you want. Okay, so I'm just giving you that. Stand in order. There's that, okay? All right. That will come in handy in a couple weeks. Um, So let's start this. Esther chapter 3. 
verse 1. Uh, the author tells us that after all this took place, so this happens years later. So years have separated Esther. She's been queen for a few years. Uh, Mordecai, uh, he saved, you know, the king's life a few years back. And so this is years later. It says, after all this took place, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of uh, Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now, interesting that the author explains this to us or even tells us this bit of information um, because this is actually key. Now, some of you guys might not even care, but like focus in here, all right, because this is a little complicated, all right? You guys, are you ready? I'm going to tell you what that is. Okay. An Agagite was a descendant of this guy named Agag, okay? He was a king. He was king of a group of people called the Amalekites, um, which were a neighboring people to Israel, and they had been enemies with Israel for centuries, okay? So for a long, 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 long time. We see them um, a thousand years before this whole story with King, with, uh, King Xerxes and Queen Esther. Um, a thousand years before this, you have uh, Moses. He's leading the people, uh, the Israelite people out of Egypt. And uh, they're doing their thing. And they're kind of wandering in the wilderness. And all of a sudden, these Amalekites, this group of like warring clans, they come up and they attack the Jewish people, all right, for no reason. They just attack them. Um, and it's interesting because... Because, I mean, these Jewish people at this point, they're just ex-slaves. Okay, they own no land. They had done nothing to the Amalekites, and these people attack anyway. And we see in Deuteronomy that these people, the way that they attack is they go and they, uh, they, they pick off the stragglers that are falling behind. So the, all the Jewish people are kind of moving throughout the wilderness, and then these people are coming. They're going after the sick, the old, the, um, the, the disabled. They're going after the people who are the weakest. And it's just super messed up. Like, that's messed up, right? Just say it real quick with me. That's messed up. Yeah, these are messed up people. And so, um, and so because of that, we see the, the Jewish people, they fight them. They actually win. Moses is like holding up his staff type thing. We're not going to get into that. And, uh, and we see these people kind of reappear a few hundred years later. At this point in time, Israel, they've got their land. Uh, they have their first king. The first king, his name is Saul. And Saul goes to war against the Amalekites, these same people. And the king of the Amalekites at this point is this king named Agag, okay? You see his name up there, his king Agag. And God goes to Saul and he says, hey, here's the deal. I want you to remember, do you remember what, your aunt, what these people did to your ancestors with Moses and all them when they, when they left Egypt? He's like, because of that and because these people are evil, you need to put King Agag to death, okay? You need to execute him. I'm going to let you beat them. I'm going to give you the victory. It's going to be good for Israel, but he needs to be put to death. And then Saul, he takes on that victory, all right? They defeat the Amalekites, but he kills only like the worst things, all right? He's supposed to not take any animals or nothing, but he keeps a lot of the stuff, a lot of the plunder for himself, and he allows King Agag to live. Well, because of this, what we see is that God actually rejects Saul as the first king. And Samuel the prophet, he's there. He's kind of the mediator between the two. Uh, he actually has to be the one that puts King Agag uh, to death. So when the, we're reading this, to us, he's an Agagite. You know, they're just like, that means nothing to me. I don't care. But to the Jewish audience who's reading this, and this is what the author, this is who the author is writing to, this is like key. Like, they totally get this. They totally understand this. They're like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Just saying, Haman is an Agagite. He's a descendant of King Agag, that Amalekite king. All right, longtime enemy of Israel. He's one of those people. And the author's like, yeah. 
It says, he promoted him, Haman, in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. So now we're introduced to this guy named Haman. We know a little bit about his family background. He, he, his family line comes from an ancient nation that hated Israel and wanted to wipe Israel off the map. Uh, he gets promoted to the second in command of the most powerful nation on earth, which in turn makes this guy the second most powerful man on earth, second only to King Xerxes. And on top of that, King Xerxes wants to honor this guy, so he signs into law that when Haman walks by, everybody has to bow down and everybody has to praise him. We see this in the next verse. It says the entire royal staff at the king's gate, they bowed down and they paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai, who works at the king's gate, remember, he would not bow down or pay homage. So whenever Haman would go out, he expected everyone to worship him. He expected everyone to praise him. By the way, this is super typical of like the Persian culture back then. Um, Persian kings were considered divine. They were considered like gods and they were to be worshipped and viewed as gods. And so here we have the second in command in the entire country, Haman, who's this powerful official. He's wanting the same worship. All right, he's wanting that same, the same praise. He's like, hey, everybody wants to, needs to check me out. All right, he, that's what he wants. And so Haman, as he goes by, everybody bows down and worships him, except for one guy, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, who raised her. I mean, and, and it's, it's, it's an issue. I mean, uh, think about this, okay? Uh, think about how it would have felt like, to be in that moment, all right, for Mordecai, at least. Like, how would it be for Mordecai? I mean, just, just think about that for a second. He's heard the decree from the king, all right, it's signed into law. He sees Haman coming down the road. There's like a wave, how I picture it. There's like a wave of, of the crowd that are all bowing down in front of Haman, in front of Haman as, he's, as he's going by. And everybody around him, I mean, think about it. With Mordecai, he's probably standing there. He's got, the, uh, he's got other high officials with him. And they all get ready. They get on their knees. They start to praise Haman. And then Mordecai, they all bow down. And Mordecai's left there standing. Right, just you ever think ever like read the Bible and you wonder like what you would do if you're in a similar situation to the person that you're reading about? You ever do that? Okay, like like what would you do in this situation? Just think about that for a second. Knowing that disobeying or not bowing down could get you killed. Actually, probably would get you killed. See, sometimes I ask myself myself as a as a pastor, as your pastor. You know, I'm just like. Am I producing, I get God's doing it, but am I producing Christians who follow only when it's convenient? Like, like our church, Grace Community Church here in Tiffin, do we follow God only when it's convenient, or are we Christians who follow God at all times, including when it's very, very, very inconvenient? See, Mordecai, he refuses to bow, he refuses to praise, he refuses to worship, and he's the only one. The only one. It's just this one guy, and I'm sure he knows, as he's standing there alone, after everybody else is down on their faces, that this is going to make his life difficult, and this is going to cause some problems. Now, uh, verse 3, it says, the members of the royal staff at the king's gate, they asked Mordecai, they're like, dude, what are you doing? Right? What, what, why are you disobeying the king's commandment? Get down. 
It says, when they had warned him day after day. So now we learn that this isn't just like a one-time thing. This is happening over and over and over again. It's, it's day after day. It says, after they warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to him. Then they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he had told them that he was a Jew. All right? So not only does Mordecai refuse to bow down, but he tells them the reason. He says, hey, the reason why I refuse to bow down is because I'm a Jewish guy. I'm a God follower. Okay? I don't, I don't worship people. I worship the one true God. In verse 5, it says, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, Haman was filled with rage. This really bothers Haman. Mordecai is not giving him the respect that he thinks that he deserves. And as we sit here uh, today, 2,500 years later, I think it's really easy for us to think, man, wow, bad Haman, really bad guy. I'm glad I'm not as bad as he is. You know, that's messed up. But this is what I want us to understand today, okay? This is, this is where we're going with this. The pride that's in Haman is also in us. The pride that Haman has is a condition that we all have. How many of you guys have ever had your pride, um, you know, shaken? That ever happened before? Um, I remember eighth grade. Okay, I'm going all the way back to eighth grade. In eighth grade uh, math class, algebra. Now, how many of you guys are really terrible at math? Okay, yeah, me too, all right? I'm just not good at it. I've never been good at it. I'm not, uh, I, I don't like math at all. Now, I know we got some, some of you guys are really good at math, and I know we even have, like, math teachers in here. And so because we're Christians, all right, we love you. We just don't like you very much, okay? <laughs> tell the truth. But, uh, but no, um, we, uh, I, I was, I'm always been terrible at math. I've hated math class. It's like the worst class for me. And so in eighth grade, I remember we're sitting in, I, probably like algebra or something, I don't even know. And I'm sitting in class, it's not my favorite thing, and I'm sitting in the back, you know, back row, that's where like all the cool kids sit, you know, in middle school, I'm sitting there with all my friends, and I don't have a good grade in the class, but at least I'm with my friends, and I'm making it, I'm like tolerating it. And the teacher is one of those teachers that didn't assign seats, okay? There's really only two types of teachers in this world. Some teachers, they assign your seats, other teachers are cool and fun. And they don't assign seats. And so you can sit with your friends and, you know, you probably didn't learn as, as much, but that doesn't matter. You know, you're there for fun. Anyway, so I'm there in class. And I remember one day the teacher comes out and, um, and we're all sitting in the spots that we usually sit in. And says, hey, today um, I'm going to start assigning seats. And you're like, oh, come on, come on. Oh, man. You know, where am I going to sit? And by the way, nobody sits in the front row. Okay. You know what I mean? Almost like. I appreciate you guys today, <laughs> almost like how it usually is every Sunday. But today we got three really cool people. All right. Um, now I paid. No, I didn't. Anyway, so I'm th sitting there, and, he, and so he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to sign seats. And he gives us, and he starts picking out. He says, hey, the people in the second row of class, I want everybody to know these people have the best grades in the entire class, okay? And so you're sitting there like, oh, well, I know he's going to sit there, not me. Um, and so... You get, you know, the teacher starts reading off the names, and so it's just, you know, like five rows going back, and 
picks out each student to sit in the second row, and it's the usual suspects. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, of course you're going to sit there. Of course you're going to get the second row. Now it's like the second row is the row everybody wants to be in. Of course, you know, and all this stuff. And then he says, Zach Pinkerton. And I'm like, oh, what? And he said, come on up. All the second row seats are filled. He's like, I want you to come, and I want you to sit in the front row right here. And I'm like, okay. And so I go, you know, oh, man, I got to sit in the front row. It's the worst row. You know, and then uh, he calls out some other people. And then after we're all sitting there, and we don't know why, he's like, and now I'll tell you what the front row people are. He says, the front row people are the people with the worst grades in the class. And I remember being like, got to be kidding me. You know, like, come on. And it's like, it, and I had that, I was in the front row for the rest of the year. Okay, stunk. I tried as hard as I could to get a better grade. I didn't care about my grade. I just wanted to get out of the front row, and I couldn't, which was annoying because everybody was trying to get out of the front row or not to go to the front row. So it really caused issues within the class. But I remember, it's like every day I walk into class, and it's like this giant sign above me is what it feels like saying, hey, dumbest people sit here. And I was the dumbest out of all the class, like me, you know, it's just like, man, come on. Like, uh, like there's times in our life where we just don't have much pride because it gets taken from us. Or, or we've all felt that attitude where it's just like, man, you know, why are you treating me like this? Or, or why do you got to tell people or whatever? You know, it's like we've all felt this rage like Haman has had here in the story. And we've all been upset because someone didn't give us the respect or the recognition, or the honor, or the appreciation, or the attention that we feel like that we deserve, or we feel like that we are owed. In fact, what I can confidently say is that I fully believe that of all the sin that each and every one of us deal with, which by the way, every single one of us, including myself, we're all terrible sinners, right? All right, if you didn't know that coming in here, you know that now. It's not just me saying that. I'm getting that from God, okay, the Bible. So um, we're all terrible sinners. And so I think out of all the sin that each and every one of us all right, struggle with, which is a ton of different things, I think pride in our life is the worst. I think we struggle with this the most, whether we want to admit it or not. See, pride's this feeling within us that's, hey, Look at me. Check me out. Look what I did. Hey, that was my idea. Look how good I am. Look how important I am. See, deep inside, we all desire and we all crave praise. We all crave that recognition. All right, it's a part of all of us. This has actually been a problem since the beginning. I mean, think back, like think all the way back to, to Adam and Eve. Remember Adam and Eve? Remember how this all, you know, uh, happens where Adam and Eve, they got the perfect uh, relationship with God. It's exactly how God has made it. It's, it's perfect. Even God says, he's like, man, this is, this is good. And they get to hang out with God and spend time with God and walk around in the evenings with God. And then remember what happens? Satan en enters the picture. He's trying to corrupt everything good that God made. And he goes to Eve and he's standing, or he's, he's standing there with Eve. And remember what he says? Remember what he asked her? He says, hey, did God really say? First he gets her to just question God's words. Did God really say that you're not supposed to touch or eat from this tree? And what's Eve do? Remember what she does? She's like, hey, um, actually, God says we're not even supposed to eat from this tree. We're not even supposed to touch the tree or we will die, which isn't exactly what God said. God didn't say anything about touching it. It's just about eating. And so she's like, if we, we even come close to this tree, we're going to die. And remember what Satan says? 
He says this in Genesis chapter 3. He says, no, no. You will certainly not die. First lie right here. All right, first he gets her to question it. Then he just straights up lies to her. Right, you know how we know this is a lie? Has anybody seen Eve around? She's dead. She's gone. Okay, she died. He says, no, 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 no. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman. He says, in fact, now check out what he does here. This is key. He says, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes are going to be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's he doing here? Right? He's making a play on her pride. Like out of every trick in the book that Satan has, what's he do? He strokes her ego and he strokes her pride. He's saying, hey, Eve, I got, I got great news. All right? Did God really say that? Like you can actually be like God. Eve, you could be on his level. Your eyes can be open. You will understand more. God is actually trying to keep this from you. See, it's all about her. It's all about Eve. And guess what? It worked. See, Haman-level pride is within all of us. It was within us even at the beginning. It was in Adam and Eve. It was in Haman. It's in you. It's in me. See, Haman was filled with pride and rage. And then he acts on that pride, which is what we often do. It says, when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, that he's a Jew, it seemed repugnant to Haman, to do away with Mordecai alone. And so he planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Xerxes' kingdom. So Haman comes up with this plan, and, he, and he's, he's ready for it. He probably doesn't take him very long, and, and he's acting on his pride. He decides to have Mordecai killed. He's like, fine, I'm, Mordecai's gone. I'm just gonna, we're just going to kill him off. But not just Mordecai. He decides to, to kill off all of his people, too. He's like, hey, not only Mordecai needs to die, but all of his people, all the Jewish people need to die, too, all because this one man isn't honoring me or showing me the respect that I think I deserve. And so he goes to the king. He says, then Haman informed King Xerxes. He said, hey, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom. They're like, they're everywhere. It's crazy. They're keeping themselves separate. They got their own rules. He says, their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. So it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. He's like, they shouldn't even be here. He says, if the king approves, and if, if you're good with it, king, whatever you think, but let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. I, personally, Haman, will pay 375 tons of silver to the officials for deposit in the royal treasury. Now, um, historians, they would say, hey, this is about $20 million. So even Haman, he's like, hey, man, I'm rich. I got all kinds of money. I'm the second most powerful man on the planet. Um, a king, guess what? I'm going to give you like $20 million. I'll pay for everything just to make this thing happen. This is the king. He hears this. And King Xerxes, he always makes the best decisions. All right, especially when he's got advisors there telling him what to do. He's like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Mm-hmm, okay. Um, so he removed his signet ring from his hand, and he gave it to Haman, son of Hamadetha, and the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. So he just hands him his ring, and he says, then the king told Haman, he says, hey, the money and people are given to you to do with as you see fit. He's like, whatever. All right. Actually, he's saying, hey, keep your money. 
I don't need your money. You keep your 20 million. I don't need that. Do what you want. I don't care, which is exactly what Haman was hoping to hear. So Haman, controlled by his pride, signs this thing into law. And here's the law. It goes something like this. It's on a certain day, everyone in the empire are to attack all the Jewish people that are in the empire. And Haman even writes in there, he says, the young and the old, the women and the children, they are all to die. And in return, he puts a motive in there. He says, hey, if you kill any Jewish person, you can actually keep all their stuff. So instead of us having all this stuff around, and here's a house that a Jewish family were in, but they're all dead, what's going to happen? He's like, hey, if you're the ones who kill them, you get to keep all their stuff. You can keep their house. You can keep whatever they have. And so that's the plan. And so Haman writes this thing into law. He starts to send it out, and he is done. I mean, think about it. He's got everything going for him. The new law is written. So far, his plan is a success. The king Xerxes, he trusts him with everything, it seems like. And everything seems to be just going super great for Haman. He's got this huge promotion. He's the most second powerful man on earth. He's got people worshiping him. He had this like little hiccup thing with this guy named Mordecai, but now Mordecai is going to die along with all his people, which is awesome because Haman's family has actually hated, has actually been in a feud with Mordecai's people for centuries, and Haman's actually going to be the one to finally get the thing done, like to finally kill them all off and finally wipe them out. And so Haman is feeling pretty good about himself, and one of the saddest verses in the Bible is this. says, the couriers left. Spurred on by royal command. That's Haman saying, hey, you tell everybody about this, um, about this new law. And the law was issued in the fortress of Susa, and the king and Haman sat down to drink. Not a care in the world. The king doesn't care. He probably doesn't even realize that there's millions of people that are going to be killed through this one law. And Haman, he knows exactly what's going to happen, and he's pumped about it. He doesn't care that all these innocent people are going to die just because of his pride and his hatred for this one man. So they sit down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. Everybody else, they're like, whoa, what? You know, everybody who's reading this new law, they're like, well, what's going on here? You know, the people throughout the empire. Remember, we talked about last week how at this point in history, 44% of Earth's population is within the Persian Empire. Okay, they own a huge swath of the world. And these people are like, what? I got to kill my neighbor? What? This guy needs to die? That's the Jewish family over there. You know, what's going to happen to them? What are we supposed to do? And everybody is in confusion, and nobody knows what to do, and everybody's probably a little worried. Like, what if this happens to me? What if this happens to my people? What's King Xerxes think? What's the deal here? All because of one man's pride. Man, this really shows us how dangerous pride is in our life. Something seemingly so small destroys us. It destroys us all. It's an issue for every single one of us. It destroys us from the inside out. And that's a reminder that I don't care how good you think you are, that we all need to hear today. Now, this is what I'm not saying. All right? I'm not saying that you have pride in your life, and because of that pride, millions of people are going to die. Okay? I'm not saying that. But here's the issue, here's the reason, all right? Pay attention, focus here, all right? I don't think millions of people are going to die because of the pride in your life. I think the only reason that won't happen isn't because you have less pride than Haman, okay? I think it's because you haven't achieved what Haman's achieved. That's the reason why stuff like that won't happen, right? I think it's because you will never have the amount of power that Haman had. 
It's not because you have less pride. It's because you will never be in such a position of authority that Haman is in. Like, what I'm saying is, don't think for a second that you're better than this man. Because that's pride talking. That's Haman-level pride. Haman-level pride is in all of us. Like, it's there. I think part of it is we just, I mean, we just don't think we're all that bad. The Bible says, man, we are. See, the Bible warns us about pride constantly. I mean, um, the Bible says James actually talks a lot about it. I know we just went through James last summer. Uh, but, uh, but James, you know, he tells us, he says God's, God opposes the proud. God has nothing to do with the proud. He actually opposes the proud. He works against proud people. I mean, the, the James, he comes on the scene. He's like, hey, you think you're something? <laughs> the Bible says we're dirt. Like we're dust. We're nothing. You think you've accomplished a lot in your life? You think you have a lot of experience? The Bible says that your life is a mist. It's here and then you're gone. We don't last very long. It's like the Bible comes and says, hey, you think, you know, you, you know what you're going to be doing tomorrow? James, he comes and he says, hey, we shouldn't even talk in confidence about what we will do tomorrow. In fact, we should say things like, hey, I'm going to do this tomorrow if the Lord wills because we don't even know if we're going to be here tomorrow. Because we don't have a clue. Because we have no control. Like you see the difference here? You see how we, how we naturally think, even just on a super easy, like, everyday level, and how serious the, the Bible takes that and kind of points it out and says, hey, that's pride. That's pride in your life. That's, that's arrogance. You shouldn't have that. See, understanding where we fall in the pecking order in comparison to God is the beginning of re- removing pride in our life. We got to know where we stand, how God's way up here and we are along with everybody else equals in the fact we're way down here. See, understanding that we're dirt and that we're not here long and that we lack knowledge, like that's just not a good starting place in our life for building ourselves up in front of others. Like it's not a good starting place for pride. Like what I'm saying is we don't go around and say, hey, look at me, I'm dust, I'm ignorant, you know, and I'm only gonna be here for a second, but look at me, look how good I am, look how awesome I am. You know, like we don't do that. Those two things just don't kind of fit together. It doesn't fit well together. And any time that we have an attitude or a thought or a desire that's like, hey, look at me. I desire that recognition. I want you to understand like what I did. They're like Bible, James, he comes out and says it. He's like, that's just dumb. He says it's foolish. It's messed up. In fact, in James chapter 4, verse 16, he says, hey, man, you boast in your arrogance He says, all such boasting is evil. He's like, man, that's evil inside of us. And so today, is to kind of wrap this stuff up and got a little farther along in the story. I'm not here to say, hey, here's the five things you need to do to get rid of pride in your life, okay? I don't know. Bob has so much to say about pride. I don't have time. You know, we don't have time to get into everything. But what I just want to do today is use the story of Haman, and I just want to point it out in your own life. I think sometimes we just need to do that. We just need to, first of all, we just got to understand that there's an issue. And it's an issue that probably a lot of us in here that we don't even think a second about. So that's what I want to use today for, just to point out and say, hey, you got it. It's an issue. Haman-level pride is within you, and it's in me. 
so as you leave today and you go into your, you know, your routine, your weekly routine, you go back to work and to school and, you know, and you go back home and see your family and just all that stuff. And, you know, I just start looking for it. Like it's there. Right? Look how you communicate with your spouse or your kids or your employees or your boss or your classmates or your teacher or whatever. I mean, you start looking for it, you'll see it. And I encourage everybody just to leave here looking for that today. It's a problem. Let's pray. Uh, God, we thank you for these words, especially about pride. Here's a prime example Lord, in the story of Esther, of what pride can do. It is evil. It is messed up. It spurs us to do things that sound crazy. It's all pride. God, we ask that you would help remove the pride in our life. And that's way easier said than done. But God, we know that with your help, that we could do anything. And with your help, we can actually do that. And God, help us just point those places out in our life this week. Those places where we need to to kind of rebuild those places that we need to, to, to fix, especially when it comes to pride in our life. And, and God, we thank you for loving us and we thank you for caring about us when you don't have to, but you do. We ask for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.